Well, good morning. We are continuing on in our study of Hebrews, which we have uh, made exciting for you by doing the first 11 chapters last fall and then picking up 12 and 13 right now, basically just to make sure you were paying attention. So good job. I'm sure you all caught that. Way to go. But we're going to be finishing up the book of Hebrews over the next two weeks. And we're going to be in chapter 13 for both weeks. And it's interesting because we come to a chapter that is just chock full of practical applications. A lot of like, you should do this. You should do that. You should do this. Don't do that. Don't do this as well. But as we do it, it's important to remember this comes at the end of the book for a reason. The entire book of Hebrews has been building the case that Jesus is so good. He is so much better than angels. He is so much better than the law, than any of the high priests, than any of the sacrifices. And even last week, we saw that we have not come to a kingdom that can be shaken, but we've come to God's kingdom, an unshakable kingdom, meaning we are completely secure in Christ's love for us that he is the great high priest who goes between us and God, assuring our peace. He was the once and forever sacrifice, making sure that we are in right relationship with God forever. And so these chapters are the, so what? Oh, well, now what? Right, if all that's true, if Christ is all these things, if we have an unshakable kingdom, well, now what? How should we live? And our passage today picks up that passage and gives us some practical wisdom. So if you have your Bible, turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 13. We're just going to look at the first six verses, which has plenty enough for us to cover. It's also in your bulletin, and it is already up on the screen behind me. So Hebrews chapter 13, read along with me as we look to God's word this morning. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in high honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me this morning? God, we need your word. We need your truth. We need the life that it gives. Um, So often we don't know which way to go. We forget what's true. So would you speak through your word this morning? If anything comes up that is simply my idea or thoughts or opinions, uh, let that fall quickly away. But would your word be the drink we need this morning as we are thirsty, the food we need to sustain us, um, the life-changing gift that you've given. So come meddle in our lives. We invite you, we ask you in the name of Christ, amen. I remember it well. About 12 years ago, I was an esteemed Orangewood summer intern. That's true. This is where my journey began many, many years ago when I was just a college student. And I was a college student who who grew up Baptist. I was kind of still figuring out this whole grace thing and what that meant and this reform stuff, and it was new. And I was sitting in this very room 
listening to one Jeffrey P. Jakes, or some of you may affectionately know him as El Jefe. (laughs) And I I actually remember his sermon point. Now, in 12 years, I'm going to come back and check in with you to see what you remember from this sermon. So no pressure. No, but seriously, I remember vividly, clearly sitting here and watching Jeff as he showed two movie clips. I think the projector was even over here on this side, but he showed two clips from the movie Saving Private Ryan. And if you recall the plot of Saving Private Ryan, Ryan is one of many brothers in World War II. All of his brothers have died in action. And so the higher-ups really would like to send one of this mother's children home to her safe from the war. So they, they create a special unit to go find him, to go rescue him and make sure he's delivered safely to his home. And Jeff showed two scenes from this movie. And the first is where everyone in the unit, except the captain, except the leader, has already passed away. They've already died in combat. And he's left with Private Ryan, having just delivered him to safety and is in the process of expiring himself and grabs Ryan by the collar and says, earn this, earn this. Essentially saying, these men have shed their blood for your life. You'd better live right. You had better earn the sacrifice that was made on your behalf. And then Jeff showed a scene from the end of the movie. This will be a spoiler, but if you haven't seen it yet, I think you've had time, so I don't feel bad about that. When we pass the decade mark, spoilers are fair game. So at the end, we see Ryan as an old man in the memorial graveyard at Normandy. And he looks into his wife's eyes, crying, begging her, please tell me I have been a good man. Please tell me I have been a good man, that I have lived a life worthy of the sacrifice of the blood that was shed on my behalf. Please tell me that I have earned this. And I confess, the first time I watched that, I was like, wow, that's so moving and so beautiful. And then Jeff ruined that for me. (laughs) Because what he showed me is that is not grace. That's merit. What essentially had happened was a, a giant weight was hung around his neck for the rest of his life. You better not mess up and you better shape up and you better live life to the complete fullest because so much was prepared for you. Don't mess this up. You better earn it. You better work hard. You better be generous. You better be all these things and follow all these rules so that you can be good enough. That is the opposite of our relationship with God. And that was his main point is that that's not grace. Grace is that you were dead. You were already dead in your sin. And Jesus Christ came to you when you were helpless. You had no hope of pleasing him. You could never earn anything. And he said, I will love you at the cost of my own life to make you come alive. You can never earn this. I'm not asking you to try because you could never, ever, ever do it. Grace is an undeserved, unmerited gift of God's love that we desperately needed, could never earn, or could never deserve. God never looks on us and says, earn this. He looks at us and said, I earned this. The debt is paid. 
Your sin is not against you. There is no condemnation. There's no double jeopardy because Jesus himself took your sin upon his shoulders and it was finished. Why do I tell that story? Because this morning we're going to be looking at a lot of application, a lot of kind of the to-dos, to do and not to do. And so often when we do that, we act a lot more like we're living out Saving Private Ryan. And that's often what I thought maybe when I was younger. that You know, God saves us. And when he saves us, he basically says, I'm going to give you a fresh start, right? I'm going to give you a new pair of clothes. You were so dirty in your sin. I'm going to put you in clean, beautiful clothes. But those cost a lot of money. So don't get them dirty again. You, you need to live right. I gave you a fresh start, but you better start shaping up now that I gave you the restart. I'll do it again if I have to, but I don't really want to. So do better this time, all right? And that's a lot of times how we think of obedience of like, ah, oh, man, I got to try harder. I got to be better because if I don't, maybe God won't like me as much. But if I do, maybe he'll like me and I'll get nice things from him. It's a misunderstanding of God's love because what it says is it, it highly overvalues our ability to earn God's favor. If you had a million years of doing wonderful good things, you could not pay back one drop of the blood of Christ that was spilt on your behalf. The fact that you can't earn it is why Jesus came. And it undervalues the, the, the sacrifice that was made for us. So that's one of the mistakes. I just call it out so that we can avoid that. We're not earning anything. We're not paying anything back when we try to obey God. Well, the other mistake we can make is I really understand grace. Like I know God loves me. I know his heart for me. I know my identity is in him and what he did. So I don't really need to worry about like the rule stuff. I don't really need to worry about the commands he gives because that's not what our relationship is not built on his commands. It's, it's built on grace. So why? I just kind of skip those sections. Well, that's an error too, because God tells us things for our good. We read earlier, he is a loving father and he made you. So he's saying, hey, this is how you should live because this is what you were made for. This is what true life looks like. So they're, they're both mistakes that kind of have a nugget of truth. Yes, we absolutely have to respond to such great a sacrifice. And yes, you absolutely cannot earn anything from God and you should enjoy the freedom of his unmerited love for you. So then how do we read our passage this morning? If I don't do that, and if I don't do that, how should we consider the clear instructions he gives us? It's one simple word, love. What we're going to see this morning is these are instructions of how to love and how not to love. But it is all a response of the love that you have already been given in Christ Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews has made that profoundly clear. You are already loved. Your hope is already in God. Your faith is in him and not in your ability to be awesome. And if that's true, this is what a loving response to the love we've already been given would look like. So we do these things not out of obligation or of guilt uh, or of hope that Jesus would love us more because he can't. He loves you fully. Or fear that he would love you less, he never will. But we do it because we 
understand deeply how loved, accepted, and provided for we already are in Christ Jesus. All right, so here's where we're gonna go this morning. We're gonna just look at each of these verses, kind of say, what does it mean for our lives? How do we understand it? And then what on earth does it have to do with Jesus? So it's gonna be straightforward. I didn't have an outline because I'm gonna go through very straightforward and simply. And those of you that are creative, you have doodle space now, you're welcome. But, but follow along with me as we just look at what does this passage say about us and what does it have to do with Jesus? We're gonna start with the first point in verses two and three, which simply is that we are called to love the outsider and the outcast. We are called to love the outsider and the outcast. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The first point is hospitality, right? We're supposed to show hospitality to the strangers. And I have great examples of ways I already see this happening at Orangewood. So how many of you young, how many of you were at VBS last week? Either as a worker or as a kid? right? Okay. This is a very small sampling because last week we welcomed in 360 children onto our campus. That's not a small number. And if you've ever tried to corral 360 children, I hope you've never had that privilege. It's wonderful. It's so exciting. But that is showing hospitality. We didn't know all the the children that came. We didn't have relationships with all of them, but we welcomed them in, which was 160 different people welcoming in these children from things like running games of tag in this very room that included wonderful things like um, uh, pool, uh, pool noodle horse races, as well as other things. It's amazing that a sermon ever got written with all of the myriad distractions that occurred this week. But people that would even just bring snacks or those that would help children assemble crafts, which if you've ever done that with three-year-olds, is a sanctifying activity. But that's showing hospitality to strangers in a beautiful way. When we do trunk or treat, when we do all these things, even those that came and helped with Chuck's memorial, that's showing hospitality. We also have women in our congregation who get together with women and families that have moved here from countries in the Middle East that don't know English to teach them English, to have tea with them, to give them relationships and community, to welcome them in. That's why we sometimes offer translation services. You might hear two people in the back whispering back and forth because usually it's somebody translating a sermon from English to like Turkish or Arabic because we want outsiders, strangers to feel welcomed in. It's even things as simple as people that greeted you on the way in, ushers and greeters that are trying to say, hey, you're welcome here. Come in. We're glad that you're here. Shameless plug. We need more ushers and greeters. So if you want a practical way to live out the sermon that you're hearing this morning, talk to us. We would love to get you connected because it really is a way of offering hospitality. Another tremendous opportunity that often can feel more like a threat to us is the current refugee crisis. There are literally thousands of people who do not have a home, who've been driven from their home, not by choice, who feel 
painfully like strangers and outsiders with no country, no home, and no belonging. And I'm so grateful that MTW, our missions organization, is targeting this as a prime opportunity to take people and say, you are loved, you belong, and we care for you. But even things like that, even in our own backyard, are opportunities to show hospitality. Well, it kind of begs the question of us, well, is that our posture? Do, do we look for these opportunities? Let's make it practical and simple. When we're here on a Sunday morning and we see somebody that seems like maybe they don't know where to go or what's happening or they're sitting like in a far back corner by themselves, do we think, hey, maybe that person needs someone just to say hello? Or if you're, you know, like me some days, or if you're an introvert at all, you're like, let's ah, avoid eye contact. Right, but, but what's our posture? Are we, are we looking for opportunities to show hospitality? Because at its core, hospitality is taking someone that is an outsider and it's giving them a place of rest. It is giving them a small piece of home. It is giving them a place to belong. And isn't that what all of our hearts long for? Well, we don't have time to deal a lot with those in prison or those mistreated, but, but at its core, it's saying something similar. It's saying that we are called to love those who are suffering and struggling. We are called to love those who are mistreated, to care about and even to enter in with their pain. And that's what the verse said of remembering those in prison as if you were in prison with them. It's called empathy. It means feeling along with somebody. That passage at its least is a call for us to come alongside those suffering, struggling, and to walk with them, not to fix it, not to make it better by saying nice Bible verses or God's in control, but sometimes just walking with them in the sadness and shedding tears or walking with them in the suffering. And there's hundreds of ways we do this. Now, when I said hospitality to strangers, everyone in the room that was an introvert did this. Please don't make eye contact. Please don't look at me. Please don't tell me that I have to talk to a room full of strangers because I just died on the inside three times. But some people for VBS showed hospitality by making cookies, by assembling crafts before any human ever got there and before an army of children could talk to them, they made crafts and then set them out and then left. But the idea is God is calling you to use what you have been given. If you are a high extrovert, be a greeter. (laughs) If you're not, don't do that. The idea is, what are the gifts God has given you? Where has he placed you where you have opportunities to show hospitality, to welcome others in? Well, it's not easy. I'm not going to pretend it is. Showing love to the outcast, uh, the outsider. Uh, hospitality requires sacrifice of your time, of your money, of control of your own schedule, of being able to do what you want when you want. Showing hospitality to others will cost you something and you have to make room for it in your life. Showing empathy costs you something. If you want to walk with someone who is suffering, you will feel their pain. It will cost you something. Great pep talk again, Dave. Thanks, I'm so pumped up now. I wanna do that. It's painful and it's hard. Let's do it. So why do it? Because that is exactly how Jesus loves you. 
you and I were outsiders. We were, not, we were not just strangers. We were enemies of God. And Christ came looking for us. He came searching and seeking us out when we were alone, when we had no family, no hope of connection, no hope of life. And he came and found us. And through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he said, come in. You are no longer an outsider. You are welcome here. You are family. When we think of those imprisoned or mistreated, truly, when we were in a prison of sin, of shame, of expecting nothing but God's judgment, with no hope of escape, Christ was really and truly imprisoned so that we might be set free. He was actually mistreated to the point of death that we would only know the kindness, the love, the approval, and the favor of God the Father. We show hospitality to strangers because Jesus showed hospitality to us when we were enemies and made us his family. We show hospitality to the outsider and the outcast, and we love them because we were outsiders and outcasts until Christ made us his own. So that's the first point. Basically, love others the way you've been loved. There's a phrase I often think of in my mind, sometimes when my young child wakes up early in the morning and is less than happy. And I I just ask myself the question, how does Jesus treat me? When I am annoying, when I am frustrating, when I am difficult, how does Jesus treat me? He is so kind. He is so gentle. He is so compassionate. And in the call to hospitality, to love others, we're simply saying, how does Jesus love you? How does he treat you? And extend that to others. Well, the second point, which is basically saying, hey, marriage and what we do with our body matters. We see that in verse four, where it says, let marriage be held in high honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Well, because of how Christ has loved us, we hold marriage in high regard because we know marriage is about more than just two people saying, hey, I'm gonna love you forever. This is gonna be a lot more fun than doing it separately. Hoorah, let's go. And then we'll throw a party. We know that marriage is one of God's chosen metaphors to tell how he loves his people. Now, it's not his only metaphor. In the last chapter, we saw that God also uses the metaphor of a father, of a father loving and even disciplining his children. But we hold it in high regard because it's part of how God chooses to tell his story. And it means that we as a group of people, whether we're singled, whether we're married, whether we're widowed or divorced, we should be pretty pro-marriage. We should be for things like date nights and marital counseling. And when we have parents night out, when we invite another army of children onto our campus so that parents can go have a date together. We should be a community that's really for marriage because it's telling a bigger story. Now, what we should not be is a community that says marriage is a a higher level of achievement that all of us should aspire to because that's not what scripture says. Scripture puts an incredibly high honor on singleness and the calling of singleness. And if that is the call for your life, praise God. And we as a family ought to love everyone in our midst, welcoming them in so that there are no strangers 
in our community. But marriage matters, and it matters to God. And this is why misappropriate love in the realm of marriage or in our physicality is a big deal to God. Now, this morning, it is an absolute joy to have our first through fourth graders with us. Uh, Our O-Kids workers need more than a month off. They deserve a few years off um, because it's an amazing ministry they do, and they work so hard to teach deep truths to our children and to love them so profoundly well. But as a pastor, it presents a unique challenge in dealing with our topic of conversation this morning. Because what I am striving to do is speak with absolute clarity because it's essential that we do and to speak with extremely diplomatic language. So pray for me, but also lean in and listen carefully because I want to speak clearly, but I also want to speak carefully and kindly. But it is important that we talk about these things. Now, scripture meddles a lot in how we act in marriage and how we use our bodies. Probably more of us than that we would be comfortable with. But 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us that our body is the temple of the Lord. It is his dwelling place in some crazy, amazing spiritual way. So what we do with our bodies matters and it matters to God. And marriage is a representation of God's love for his people. So how we act in that relationship matters. So I would like to, as carefully as possible, try to just call out some specific things because we need to talk about them. And because honestly, there's no question that these things are being dealt with by people in this room, by maybe you today. So part of what this passage is saying is if you are married, a relationship apart with your marriage, physically, emotionally, or even mentally, is not a loving response to the way that you have been loved by God. And it's not okay. It means if you are married or single, the media on the internet or in other places that you might consume, which is not appropriate, is not okay. It is not what you were made for, nor is it what the Procreational Act was designed for. It is a distortion of a really good, and really beautiful thing. And it matters, even if nobody knows about it. If you are unmarried, this also means that what you do with your bodies matter. If you are engaging in acts of physical intimacy with another person, even if neither of you are married, it is what this passage would say is a defiling of the marriage bed. It's not what that act is for, and it ultimately is not going to satisfy you like you hope it is. It is a substitute of a greater love and a greater need. Now, we, we don't talk about these things enough in church. We're often nervous and scared to discuss them as a body of believers. And if it were not for little ears, I'd probably be blunter to try to move the needle a little bit of our comfortability. But if marriage and intimate love is God's invention then we have to be talking about it and talking about the good gift that it is, but also what it is designed for in God's design and parameters. We'd better be the ones talking about it because I guarantee you, if we do not, culture will 
happily fill the silence. For parents, this is especially true, but for all of us, it will fill the silence and it will not speak truth. And it will distort and it will twist and it will turn. So we have to be the ones talking about this. But in addition to that, we as a church have to learn to be a community where it is safe to be honest and to find help for those struggling because hiding secrecy and shame exacerbate all of these issues. Now, if any of this has hit a little close to home for you this morning, you're probably having one of two responses. One is, okay, back off because that's none of your business and I don't think it's really a big deal to God. Well, I would lovingly challenge your thinking and saying, the passage seems to indicate that it still matters to God. If your body is the temple, if this is part of his design, then it matters. But even more so when we have the weight of God saying, God will judge the immoral, the adulterous. Now, what that's not talking about is eternal judgment if you are in Christ, because all of our sin is covered in Christ for those that belong to him, even the deepest sins. But what it is saying is if you have a callous heart and you don't think that this matters, or matters to God and you're just, you're fine with it, that is a worrying diagnosis for things that may be going on. And if you truly understand the love that you are offered in Christ. But it's also likely you may be in another place this morning and you may feel utterly buried in shame. You may be struggling with something you can't seem to escape no matter how hard you try. That you have begged God for help, but you just seem stuck and you're worried and you're scared. Let me say this morning, there is always hope in Christ. The blood of Jesus is greater and stronger than your sin, and it will always be, but you cannot keep living in darkness and shadows. And this is true with any sin struggle close to our heart is so often our tendency is to want to hide and to cover up and to ignore, but there's no freedom there. There's no life there, and you were made for more than that. So the the calling, the encouragement this morning is yes, absolutely turn to Christ, repent, turn to him, but you also need community. You need others to walk with you, to lighten the load, to remind you of what's true, to remind you of who you are. So my encouragement this morning is do not keep walking in darkness, in hiding or isolation because there is no healing there. There's no freedom there. And Christ came that you might be set free. And perhaps one step towards that freedom is learning to share with somebody that's safe and trustworthy and that will remind you of what is really true about you and about the Lord's love for you. For some of you, that just sounds terrifying and you would really hope we move on very, very soon. But let me just offer some practical thoughts here that either myself or any of the pastors or staff here would love to talk to you. I'm fairly confident it is unlikely that you would share something with us that we have not heard before, that we would be shocked or surprised or scandalized by. But if even that sounds threatening, we have counselors on staff. They have to be confidential. So you could share anything you needed to them, share your birds with them and not worry about it it would be kept safe, but you need to learn to walk with others in repentance and in faith. Now, I'm, I'm not naive that this is a difficult topic and 
this is why exegetical preaching is dangerous is because I couldn't dodge it or avoid it. It was just what our text had this morning. Next, we're going to talk about the love of money. So, you know, stay tuned. There is without question deep wounds in this room on a subject like this. You have been wounded by people that should have loved you. You may have wounds that are deeply self-inflicted, but there's no question that talking about things like this bring up a lot of sorrow and a lot of shame and a lot of hurt for a lot of people. And I do not do it callously or cavalier, but we have to talk about these things. But at the end of the day, whether it is something you are struggling with or something that you have been wounded by, we turn to the same place. Because what our passage shows us about Jesus, what we are reminded of Christ and his love for us is that he is the perfect spouse. Christ loves you fully and completely. You and I are unfaithful. If we want to extend the marriage metaphor, we do not keep our marriage vows to God. Scripture uses a lot of metaphors that are unflattering about how his people frequently turn away to other things. But Christ is forever faithful. He will never turn his back on you. He will never leave you. No matter how deeply you have sinned, no matter how big you have blown it, even if it's in one of the realms we are talking about today, his love for you is steady and it is constant. So as we think about this, why, why it matters, why we love faithfully, why we avoid and flee from immoralities, because we are so perfectly loved in Christ. He is continually faithful despite our unfaithfulness because our faithfulness never got him to love us in the first place. He just did because he's weird and crazy like that. But he doesn't love you because of your performance and he won't stop loving you because of your failure. So whether you have wounds or whether you have sin and shame this morning, you come to a completely loving and never leaving savior. He is the perfect spouse. And often when we turn to the things that we've been talking about, usually we're looking for something else like identity or belonging or someone to tell us that we're desirable and worth something. What I want to remind you of this morning is that Christ has already provided more deeply for those needs. In him, you are loved forever. You are enjoyed You are wanted and he will never leave. You have a new identity that is unchangeable. So as you turn away from those things, realize what you are offered in Christ is always better. Okay, so to continue on the theme of light topics, we're now gonna talk about the love of money. God wrote it, be mad at him. Hebrews 13, the Fifth verse talks about this. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, How many of you have been, I I do show of hands things sometimes. I I apologize, but make sure we're all awake. How many of you have been in a PCA church more than like two years? Okay. So you know that we are contractually obligated to reference the Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis like, you know, once or twice a month to keep our official PCA license? No, that's not true, but it seems like that because they're really, Tolkien's a good writer. Lewis is a good writer. 
But I think of Gollum, right? The character from Lord of the Rings who kind of becomes this slimy, creepy thing that hoards after the ring. But that's not how he started. And do you remember the scene from the movie? Gollum was kind of like a hobbit. You're fun-loving people that really like food a lot. And I feel like I could fit in there really well. But he's just out fishing, having a good time. And he sees this ring and he sees it and he thinks, oh man, that, okay, that could really give me something. That, that could really satisfy some needs. And, and he loves it. And he grabs onto it. And what is the first thing he does? He ends the life of his, existing, of his friend who is out there fishing with him. And slowly this love of this ring starts controlling him till he becomes less and less of a real person. And this slimy, strange, hidden creature in the back of a cave, mindlessly talking to himself, clinging to this glittering thing. So why does God like to meddle about with things like money and what we do with our bodies? It's because he knows the love of money turns us into a golem. When we cling to it, When we love it, we think it's going to satisfy us. We die off a little bit more each day because what's happening is we are looking to money to provide something that only God can give us. Often we think that if we can get enough of it, then we will have security, stability, that we will have identity, that that maybe people will like us more, that we'll have standing with certain people that we want to respect us, that maybe we'll finally be loved. But we We think it's going to do something for us that only God can do. That's why he says, hey, pull your hands off that because you were made for more than it. And if our hearts are set on loving money, we'll never really be free because there's always more of it to try to get. And then if you get a lot of it, then you have to protect it. You have to guard it. You have to keep people away. Well, then good luck trying to show hospitality to strangers because they're a threat. We're made for more than that. The scripture is really clear about this, that only Jesus is enough, that only Jesus can satisfy what our hearts long for. So when we're offered the riches of Christ and instead we cling to dollars and cents and shiny things, it just shows we're really missing it. We're really missing the love that we're offered. Well, why does it matter? What does it have to do with Jesus? Christ left the riches of being God and all eternity to come down and be a Jewish peasant. And 2 Corinthians 8 tells us exactly why he did that. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, rich beyond all measure, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. How did Jesus treat his riches? He set them aside so that he could make you wealthy beyond measure by making you the unchangeable family of God himself. So when we cling to riches, it shows we're we're just completely missing the way God loves us. He loves us better than that. And the passage calls us to be content with what we have because what we have is actually God himself. That's something money cannot ever purchase for you. And honestly, this, this last verse, these last one and a half verses are what drive all of our responses. All of our responses are love of all the applicational passage we've talked about today are driven by the fact that God will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. 
I will not fear. What can man do to me? You are so secure in your love from Christ, so kept by God that you can risk showing hospitality to strangers even. You can risk making room because you know that you are no longer a stranger to your heavenly father. You don't have to cling to money because you know if God called you to give away everything that you have, you would still be rich beyond measure in the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. It means that you are secure and, and loved enough that if this morning, if you realize that you are a greedy person who's acting in inappropriate ways and doesn't love strangers, if you're like three for three on these, it means that you can repent knowing that God will never leave you nor forsake you. He's not gonna see your stuff and be like, <laughs> uh, never mind, that's, that's a bit too much. He's gonna say, you are my dear child. I love you. I have always loved you. Come into my arms and let me heal your wounds because that is the very reason he came. So this morning, we love because he first loved us. We love as a response to what he has already done, even as he is growing the ability to love in our very hearts through the work of Christ. Let me finish up with just painting a picture. Here's why this matters. If we learn to do this, we actually become a preview a preview of coming attractions of the kingdom that cannot be shaken that the past chapter just talked about. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine a community where there is no stranger, where there is no outsider because everyone around is eagerly looking to give people belonging, to make them feel at home, to give them an identity, to give them a place that is safe and secure. Can you imagine a community where no one ever feels like a stranger? where you never walk into a room and think, where can I hide? Because I do not fit or belong here. Because all there is is belonging and acceptance. Can you imagine a community where people seek out those who are mistreated to offer comfort and healing and care? Where there is only ever compassion, where love is always pure and self-giving and where people don't cling to the love of money, they cling to the love of each other. That is what you were made for. And that is why God cares enough to say, hey, you should live in this way because it's what you were designed for. And it is what is coming in my coming kingdom. This is how we were made to live. And this is the community that a world that is just parched for authentic love desperately needs to see. But we will only be able to do it to the extent that we understand the profound love that God has for us in Christ. You will only be able to love strangers if you understand that you are no longer a stranger, but the delighted in son or daughter of God. Brothers and sisters, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And because you are his, you have the safety, security, and freedom to go out and to love others. Would you pray with me as we ask God for the strength to do that even today? God would, if nothing else rings in our hearts, in our ears, in our minds today, would it be that we are so profoundly loved in Jesus? 
But would that love compel us, even as your scripture says, would that love that is so poured out into us pour out into those around us that we seek to make homes for people, that we seek to love just the way that you have loved us? Because it is so good, it is so rich, and it is so beautiful. Drive your love deep into our hearts today and set us free, free to love as we've been loved. We ask for that in the loving name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.